In this episode, we speak with John Jangi, the CEO of Tackle, the leading solution built to help software companies generate revenue through a data-driven cloud go-to-market. John is a business and technology leader with a successful track record of building great teams to drive emerging technology patterns. Tackle works with more than 550 software companies, including CrowdStrike, HashiCorp, Lacework, New Relic, VMware, and many more at every stage, from companies scaling their go-to-market to the largest software companies in the world. They are venture-backed by three of the world's top SaaS investors, A16Z, Bessemer Venture Partners, and Co2. I'm your host, RJ Lumba. We hope you enjoy the show. If you like the episode, click to subscribe. RJ Lumba is the managing partner of GrowthCap and the executive chairman of Market Insight Media. He is the host of Growth Investor, a podcast featuring today's best investors, executives, and founders. In the minutes ahead, we'll uncover insights and strategies for accelerating growth and succeeding in business. John, thanks so much for taking the time. It's a delight to chat with you today. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So where I'd like to kick off, you know, we're a podcast focused on growth and investing. You know, one thing I had noticed was you had started this company after a fairly long career in the tech industry. Tell us about how you decided to make that transition to become an entrepreneur. Yeah, it's a great question. I actually found my way to tech. I, I worked in big tech for EMC, and that was a interesting journey in and of itself. But along the way, there were a few different points where I said, I want to go do a startup. I want to be an entrepreneur. And life got in the way. The first time, there was a really distinct point in 2009 where I was going to go start a cloud migration company. And my wife and I had just had our first child. And one of my mentors, we were talking about, he's like, is now the right time for you? Like, you have to think about pros and cons. And ultimately, I was in that life stage where it didn't make sense. So, but that was when that itch started. It was really like late in 2008. And I went on a journey inside of a big company. We acquired a company and I was able to join the acquired company to help them scale. And they were pretty small at the time. That's actually where I met the co-founders of Tackle. We all worked together at that time. I was the corporate guy that was there to help. And they were like repeat startup people. And we ended up forging a relationship back then. And fast forward, Dylan Woods, our co-founder and CTO, had the idea. And he came back and was like, hey, I have this idea. would love to chat through it. I'm like, guys, I've never done a day zero company. I want to do one. Like, let me just help. And who knew that helping would turn into what will probably be the next 10 years of my life? So it was later on that you finally took the leap. Did you think at that point, well, I'm X years old, like, is it a good time? Or it was just the idea was so compelling. You were like, I'm going to do it. It was a combination of things. At the time when the idea emerged, we had gotten to that point where I'm like, okay, life's kind of in order and there's an opportunity to take a risk. And I also had this long career and it built a lot of experience to the point where I was like, well, I always know if this doesn't work, I can go back and get a job. And I knew if I never did it, I would never be happy. Like I needed to take the leap. And I love the four hour work week, like Tim Ferriss style, where you're like, okay, like if you do it and you spend a year and take the opportunity cost of lost income for that period of time, and then you think about it over your lifespan or your timeline to horizon, was that material? And like, that was the thing, like talking to my wife, she's like, I know you want to do it. I totally trust you. Like, go do what you're passionate about. And I think having the support at home, having like the history and career to have the confidence to be like, now's the time. 
And I talk, I'm almost 47 and I talk to younger entrepreneurs all the time about this journey. And it's different for everybody. Like some people are ready. Hindsight being 2020, I wish in my early 20s when I first started to get the itch that I would have done it. And I would have had the courage as well as the mentor support to encourage me to do it. Because I, I think while it would have been a lot harder and different, I think I would have started the entrepreneurial journey much earlier. Did you show signs of being an entrepreneur as a kid? Yeah. You know, kind of being a, a scrappier kid, I sold everything. When I was in middle school, I sold baseball cards. I was constantly like doing something just to find a way to make some money to be able to do things that I wanted to do. And I also spent a lot of time in more like creative studies. My mom was an artist and she really like fostered the spirit of creativity and also a bit of like anti-establishment just because it was done that way doesn't mean it's right. So the combo of like creative art, anti-establishment and like necessities, the motherhood of all invention, like I think fueled that entrepreneurial spirit. You know, I'm always curious about each person's life path and what led them to where they are. But it's hard. Life gets in the way. You got a mortgage, you got kids, you know, your kids might be going to college soon. Any kind of pieces of advice for those folks out there? I think it starts with how you engineer your life. I started at EMC as an SE when I was 23 years old. And I had this mentor who was a 61-year-old SE. He worked for IBM for 30 years before joining EMC in the early 2000s. And when I joined, he's like, hey, here's the deal. You don't need the money you make. Match your 401k, max your employee stock purchase plan, and then save as much money as you can on top of that. If you do those things for 10 years, you'll be good. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I'll do those things. And that first five years set the foundation for the future. I still did stuff. I still had fun. But I think if you live to what you can afford, it makes taking risk harder. Like, I think if you want to take risks in life, you have to engineer your life to be able to support that. Right. And there's nothing wrong with a, a corporate life. Like, that's a great, you can have a great and fulfilling career. But if you're someone who wants to embrace, something that looks a little different, you, you kind of have to engineer your life that way. And I didn't know at the time that that would enable my entrepreneurial desires, but it like set the foundation for it really early. Another thing that's unique is that you were able to land investment dollars from premier venture capital investors. How do you think you were able to accomplish that? Yeah. So we're born and built remote. Tackle is born and built remote. And my co-founders are in Boise, Idaho. I'm in Buffalo, New York. GitLab had raised their Series B when we were getting started. So you're like, okay, you can build a tier one venture-backed remote company. But at the time, we're like, we weren't sure what kind of company we wanted to build. So we really just started to focus on, we raised some seed capital and we started to focus on the problem in the domain. And we're like, let's just focus on the users and delivering high quality outcomes to our customers and the rest will figure itself out. And we were able to get pretty far in the product market fit cycle and get to north of a million in ARR with 50 customers that were really like name notable companies. And we didn't know how good that was at the time. A bit of ignorance is bliss. And our first outside venture investor was Bessemer. And Bessemer discovered us because a bunch of their portfolio companies used Tackle in order to enable their cloud go to market. And the first time we met with them, you know, I remember Mike Drosh, who's, who's on our board to this day, it, 
we had this whole conversation. He's like, wait, how many of our portfolio companies are your customers? And really that triggered like, hey, okay, like explain more to me about this business. How do you see these things playing out? And that triggered their interest in tackle. And ultimately, you know, we weren't raising at the time and they invested in, you know, a larger seed round that we did. We did an early seed round and we did a larger seed round and they were like, hey, we want to put some money in the company. We'd love to do an A. And we're like, no, we're not ready. We don't need this. But ultimately they found their way there. Like at the time, we always had this philosophy around investors where it's like getting married. The partner you work with, you're going to have a decade-long relationship through good times and bad. And you really want that partner to be like, what is the compliment that partner brings to you and your team and your board? And Bessemer and our partner really met that criteria. But we continued to use that. It was like the partner was first. The portfolio was second. Like when we looked left and right at the portfolio, did we feel like these were the kinds of companies that we wanted to learn with and learn from and be part of? So that like portfolio thinking was second. And then valuation was third. Like it's part of the puzzle, but over optimizing for valuation wasn't the priority for us. It was more like, let's do the right deals at the right time with the right partners and the right firms. And I mean, I feel really fortunate. I think we had this other part where as we went through stages, because we went from Bessemer to Andreessen Letter B, and at the time when we were raising the B, we didn't need the capital. We hadn't spent a dollar of our A, but we were creating a new category and we didn't know what that was like. So we're like, we need a product category creating mind in the boardroom. And we went out specifically looking for that profile. And that led us to Martin Casado and Andreessen, who like wrote his PhD thesis on software-based networking and like created this whole new category. And he was just really unique in all the people we talked to and his like instantaneous understanding of our market and where we were going. And then when we did our C, we were looking for the, who's the at scale go-to-market thinker. Like once you nail product category creation, how do you take it to market? And that led us to partnering with Kotu and Dave Schneider from Kotu who you know, famously was part of building service now. So we've tried to be thoughtful about the journey in a lot of different ways, but there is a little bit of luck. I grew up in sales. So raising money is a lot like selling. What is the product? Why is it good for someone? And how do you like find the match that makes sense? Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I think it's atypical that someone has or a company startup has a smooth of a run in terms of raising capital round after round. But I'm brought back to the point you made early, which is it sounded like you were able to get raving fans in your customer base very quickly, which convinced Bessemer. They're like, we got to back this company. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it starts with your customers. And I talk to entrepreneurs often. It'll be like, how much time should I spend raising money versus building the product and selling the product and delighting our customers. I'm like, you should be like 90, 10, 90% focus on your customers. And obviously the number one job of the CEO is not to run out of money. You have to figure out how to balance that. But when you nail the product and customer and value equation, it makes everything else so much easier. I do think there's this misnomer around product-led growth because not everything has to be product-led growth. It's just like, who are your customers? How do you deliver value for them? What are the outcomes they desire? How do you make those outcomes easier? And then how repeatable is that? Like, can you go from zero to one customer, one to 10 customers, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, and have points of view on that evolution? 
So I think for us, customers were key. And I never understood, like I'm a first time CEO, I never understood how much back channel work happens. I get calls from our customers, are you raising money? I'm like, no. Like, oh, I just got this call from <laughs> this person. And like, I'm like, oh, great to know. Thanks for letting me know. It's, but again, going back to building that relationship and building advocates for what you're doing as well as how you work with them. So let's talk about the product now. We saved it for, you know, midway through the conversation, yeah. but let's talk about what Tackle does and how you've created this category. Yeah. So we have built a cloud go-to-market platform that makes it easy for software companies to list, sell, and scale their business in partnership with the cloud providers. And we focus on AWS, Microsoft, and Google. And the theory was that in 2000. 16, when we started to experiment with this, Dylan Woods, our co-founder and CTO, was part of the beta program for AWS's SaaS marketplace. And he's like, hey, I think the clouds are going to change the way that software is sold. I think these marketplaces represent the initiation point of that. And I think there's a problem here for software companies because no one wants to build software to sell software. And it's sneaky complicated. And especially if you think about doing that across clouds, it's sneaky complicated. So we started with that hypothesis. And then... Our very first customer was New Relic, and they were like, hey, if half of what you say is true, we're in. And they gave us a PO the same day. And we're like, okay, that feels good. Like, is that repeatable? And we were able to go to a customer cohort that included like Boss Zero and PagerDuty and Wayne Disco and some other companies where we're like, okay, that seems repeatable. Like, how do we invest in that repeatability and drive scale? And the thing that's been fascinating is it started with Marketplace, which is really like this last mile. It's almost like Stripe for cloud, for third-party software. But then it's evolved to be like, how do you align your top of funnel to selling through the clouds? And the cloud providers are all capturing such massive wallet share in the enterprise, like kind of across, like cloud is rapidly becoming one of the largest budget line items for all companies. And the ability to put third-party software on your cloud bill gives you some optionality, not only from a solution standpoint, what are the right solutions I need to run my company or to build my products, but also from a budget standpoint. And that's the movement that we see happening. And cloud go-to-market is, you know, for us about using data to make decisions about the best customers to help enable to buy in this new way, co-selling with the cloud providers to align on the solution and the outcome that matters to both of your joint buyers, and then executing on those deals through marketplace and being able to take advantage of the cloud budgets at scale. I think selling software is the most expensive part of every software company and has not really been optimized. And as we shift out of this growth at all costs era to a back towards capital efficient growth, I actually think these like cloud channels become more fundamental for all software companies long-term. Mm -hmm. So then you were the perfect person to do this business, given your sales background, were you thinking like, oh, I have such deep experience in this. I can definitely accelerate this company forward. Yeah. I grew up in SE and I actually think an SE is one of the most interesting profiles and in, to run a company. I think you either have like product minds like, or you have like go-to-market minds and SEs sit in the middle, like where it's half product, half go-to-market. And when Dylan had that original idea, like changing the way that software sold is something that inspires me. Like I grew up operating in inefficient go-to-market systems and seeing how they would work. So 
that was the thing, like seeing that and thinking about how that could change. And, and especially like we've all seen the consumer side, the evolution of consumer e-commerce and how much has happened there over the last 20 years. And like B2B software, it's someone said this to me last week, it's either like it's the 1970s or it's like 2022. <laughs> like you have product-led growth where you show up, you know, in a product-led growth experience or it's like 1970 and there's really nothing in between. And, you know, the future of that it's like a combination of product led and marketing led and ecosystem led and sales led all blended together like and people are going to use different formulas from those go-to-market components as they scale so yeah i think a long history in go-to-market was helpful and those early customers that you were able to bring in are, are they still with you have they like expanded their relationship with you yeah those early customers are still with us today and have grown with us and, and even led us on our journey as we expanded across clouds, as we expanded into deeper capabilities for finance and operation, as we expanded with more top of funnel data and co-sell. Some of our early customers uh, listening deeply to their challenges were how we created the product platform roadmap. What's been the most challenging part to being an entrepreneur and scaling the company? Like, I think the last year has been the most challenging part. Like, we hit product market fit pretty early. We saw repeatability. We had a lot of traction. We were able to grow both ARR and investment. It was like the boom time for software. And, and now as we shift from the growth at all costs era to back towards capital efficient growth, it's like realigning the company to this new operating era it has been challenging. I mean, you get on a path and you put a lot of energy and momentum on going that path and then the path changes and it takes a lot of energy and momentum to redirect. So, I mean, we've had to work through what that looks like. Like, what is our ideal customer profile? How do we service? I mean, we work with 500 companies of all shapes and sizes from seed stage startups up to some of the largest software companies in the world. And they need different things. And how do we rationalize the product roadmap around that and figure out what the team structure looks like around that, figure out the business model that makes sense. So I do think that companies who navigate the current economic climate successfully will come out stronger. Like it'll be the strongest vintage of software companies mm. that we've seen in a long time, but it's definitely been tricky. Right. Let's talk about some of the meta aspects to running a company. How do you think about culture? Yeah, I mean, culture, I think this is a Ben Horowitz line. Culture is what your employees do when no one's looking. I think like culture eats strategy for breakfast and it is really key, especially in a remote company. Like your culture sets the foundation for the way that the company works. And culture changes, it evolves. Like how does it become the living, breathing organism that you want it to be? It should be ever growing and evolving, but still have some core tenants that make sense. If we're a very customer focused culture, like it all starts with our customers, whether that's our product roadmap or the way we go to market, the way we service. And we think a lot, especially in category creation mode, you have to be a continuous learner. Like. One of our values is learn and grow together because the playbook isn't written. Like we're writing the playbook. We have to continue to learn and not everyone thinks that way. And I think culture in good times is, I don't want to say easier, but 
like you learn a lot about your culture and your values through both the good times and the bad times. And I think if you have a strong culture and you have strong values, they can help you navigate both sides of that story. I think we've learned a lot about that over the last year. Did you have experience building a remote culture before you started this company? Not from scratch. We had a lot of experience working remotely in large companies, which taught you a lot of what good doesn't look like. And for us, like the tech stack was really important. We're a Slack and G Suite and Zoom based all video all the time company. And like having the digital infrastructure of your company be the way that the company operated was really important to us. And then we always did believe in in-person as well. So we tried to foster in-person interactions, whether that was an all-company meeting once a year or leadership teams getting together once a quarter, even local. I'm in Buffalo. There's like 25 tacklers local. We're doing a meetup tonight. And it's just like, hey, let's bunch of people around. Let's get together. It's uh, so trying to blend in that in-person and remote. We learned a lot from GitLab. We follow the GitLab remote playbook and other kind of remote thought leaders. And we weren't sure how it would scale. And there's these distinct points of getting to 50 employees versus getting to 100 versus getting to 200 and how that tests your remote culture. And you have to constantly rethink the communication because like as the team gets bigger, the communication infrastructure you used at 50 people doesn't scale to 200 people. You have to like tear it down, rethink it. And always rethink it from like the end user, like the employee lens. Like just because I want to do an all company meeting every Friday, does that actually deliver value to every employee? Like that's 200 man hours from that one call. And if it's not delivering 200 man hours of value, we should rethink that and just being willing to like challenge your assumptions as you go. Any key insight or tip on how to cultivate like a closeness with your fellow colleagues? In a remote culture, it's much different, I think, being in person. We're fully remote too. And so I'm always interested to see what other people are doing. Yeah. I think first, people have to want to work this way. Like, I think we're going through this great resorting where people are choosing the kind of company that they want to work for. And some people want to work for a remote company. Some people want to work for an in office company. Some people want to work for a hybrid. And all of the above will be successful. Do what makes sense for you as an individual and like think about that resorting. So we try to qualify people who are really passionate about remote. I think the second thing that's super important is lead by example. And I was talking to a CEO a couple of weeks ago and they're like, yeah, I'm a in-office leader. I think about, I know how to build companies in office. That's the way we're going to work. And that's just the way it is. And I think the acknowledgement of what you want to be as a leader and what kind of company is the company is a manifestation of you as a leader in some way. So like I'm a deep believer in remote work and my co-founders are and our leadership team is. So we walk the walk. And I think from there, you have to get to the balance of work and personal and how you foster both of those. And we invest a lot in wellness as a company. We talk a lot about wellness. We try to embrace work-life integration. We try to welcome people being on the move. And I think that work-life integration, it can't just be all business in a remote world because people do crave and thrive when they feel that connection with people. And then just trying to constantly foster those connections. We use things like Donut and Slack, which I love Donut, as a way to encourage the collisions that are, are more random. And I think it works when 
employees, when I do donuts and employees are like, I feel like I know the team at Tackle better than I knew the team that I worked in an office with. Because in an office, you kind of get like in your little pocket, you work with your team, maybe the people who are close by you, and then you get stuck. We have top to bottom exposure to everyone and how they engage with the company and the digital nervous system, which I, I think is really unique. Absolutely great insights. We're coming up on time. I want to be respectful of your time. I've got two last questions that we typically yeah. ask. One is, can you tell us about a person who has had a profound impact on you? I would have to go with my mother. She always believed in me, even when I wasn't exactly on the right path, which I think, and I, I mentioned her earlier, she was an artist and like the smart, creative style thinker. And she just led by example, like, that it's okay to challenge the way that things are done and think differently and like be willing to stand on your own two feet, even when it maybe isn't completely understood by everybody. And she was a tireless worker, like just do the work, do the right thing, do the right thing when no one's looking, be the person that you want to be, you believe you can be because you can be. So I think she was definitely one of the most influential people in my life. Excellent. Uh, last question. Can you tell us about a Charity, cause, or other endeavor that you're passionate about? Yeah, so I mentioned I'm from Buffalo. This combination of remote work and tier two cities is something I'm passionate about. So I tend to be pretty active in the Buffalo startup community, which is growing. And I think the redistribution of talent in the market is going to help tier two cities rise. And we definitely have seen this in our ecosystem. My co-founders are from Boise. So like trying to invest in these next generation tech centers to help innovation expand outside of the mega centers is a, a thing I'm passionate about and look forward to continuing to spend time on as we evolve. Awesome. Well, John, I want to thank you again for taking the time. This has been a great conversation that I know our audience will find very insightful. So thank you. Thanks for having me, RJ.